welcome to the Circular Economy Show from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. I'm Pippa Shorley, part of the team here at the Foundation. And over the next four episodes, we'll be looking at the role of creatives in building a circular economy, from building belief systems to changing how furniture is made. This week, we're hearing from Lily Cole, the model, actress, activist and author of Who Cares Wins? Reasons for Optimism in Our Changing World. She joined us for Summit 2020 when we were still in the thick of the COVID-19 pandemic. She spoke to our founder, Ellen MacArthur, and Emma Chow, former food initiative lead, about her journey from fashion model to environmental activist, why she considers herself an accidental entrepreneur, and what role she sees creatives having in improving society, the economy, and the environment. First of all, a big congratulations to you. It's been an exciting few weeks with the launch of your latest book, Who Cares Wins?, And I'd love if you can kick off our conversation by just sharing a bit of your personal journey so far, all the way from those early days of your career that started in fashion to where you are today, exploring some of the biggest systemic challenges of our time and how we might solve them. Sure. Big question. (laughs) Your life in a nutshell. Um, I'll do my best. So I started modeling when I was a teenager, when I was 14, 15. And, um, at first I kind of, I mean, it was very exciting. I was a kind of London city girl and it was exciting to be traveling the world and meeting all these interesting people. Um, but quite quickly in the first few years, I had it brought to my attention that a few of the companies I worked with were having quite negative impacts in the way that they were managing or potentially negative impacts in the way they were managing their supply chains. Um, and I just started to unpick actually what, what a supply chain means. And when I was advertising a product, or a brand, um, what, what were the implications of that? Um, and I went on a real kind of journey of learning a lot, um, learning about the, the very negative ways that supply chains can have an impact on the planet and people. Um, and then conversely, trying to focus my attention on really positive examples. So looking for companies, brands, supply chains that were trying to do things in a better way um, and starting to channel my energy that would probably otherwise have gone into like NGOs and philanthropic work instead into kind of social business and fair trade and more positive initiatives. Um, I went on to found a few of my own companies and consider myself somewhat of an accidental entrepreneur um, because I think that business is, and economics is kind of running the planet right now and we need to try and change the way that we're running the planet through economics if we want to still have a planet that's healthy in you know 50 years' time. And Lily, was there a moment, you say you... you, you it began to dawn on you, but was there one specific moment where you thought, or that you remember thinking, this is, this is not what I thought, or this is not okay, or this is, this is something I need to explore further into? Sure. I mean, there are moments, but it was also incremental because I was on a journey of learning. Um, but I'll share one, which is, you know, being, I remember being on the tube in London and I've been sent this report from the Environmental Justice Foundation. Um, a charity that I'm a patron of still today. And um, they sent me a report on cotton where they looked at the impact of cotton farming um, and how a lot of child labor was used in cotton farming at the time. Um, the fact that the pesticides and fertilizer use, of, use was causing a lot of health conditions and kind of cancers for farmers mm. and also the devastating environmental consequences of water use and um, pollution going into, um, into the land. And I remember crying. I cried on the tube reading it because it was just so bizarre and so innocuous, something as innocuous as cotton that we use and touch every day and, you know, lots of kind of banal products. 
could be having such a devastating impact um, was really eye-opening for me. I think I'd thought previously of um, supply chains only as far as manufacturing. You know, we'd heard there'd been a lot of news um, around sweatshop labor. And so I was kind of aware that that existed. And I hadn't actually really opened my mind to the the real beginning of the supply chain, the farmers, the raw raw materials. Um, And then I had, you know, kind of big eye-opening, another big eye-opening moment was on the positive side, was going to Ghana with the body shop and meeting the women who make shea butter from the shea nut and seeing how positive um, some supply chains can be to communities when they're handled in a fair way. Uh, the same with wild rubber supply chains in the Amazon. When you pay local local people to make a living from the forest, you are basically paying them to protect the forest. And so, yeah, there are examples, but it was all incremental. It's interesting you say that you you kind of, you delved deeper and you found a, a more profound understanding of something that you 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 know you thought you knew about fashion obviously because you worked in the industry but there's so much more further down the line and i think that's something which really mirrors the experience i had of of suddenly becoming aware that resources are finite and you know m- my my head said well of course there's a solution this must be okay because you know everybody uses resources and the more you dig into it the more you realize it's actually not okay and there are so many elements of it which are there and in so many people's lives but you only see it at the source or you only find it at the source, like you know, like the supply chain. And the more you dig into it, the more you realise things are actually, in many ways, not okay at all. And that really mirrors mine. It was a journey of learning. I often use the same term myself, that you know, you start to realise something and then you keep uncovering stones. And the more on stones you uncover, the, the really the bigger the challenge um, seems to become. And it's very clear f- from your book that that's been that learning that you've been on. What was the standout moment for you of, of realizing, you know, of deciding to focus on economics, I guess, as an agent of change? Yeah, for me, I think there was a similar journey. And it wasn't a specific moment where I realized because I think it happened in stages. The first was suddenly on the boat being aware that, that what I had was all I had. Now, I was trying to fix something and I thought, I have to save every little thing I have on this boat because... You know, I can't get any more. There's no stopping to buy a little bit of plastic if I need a bit of plastic or or something to fix something. You suddenly realise that it's it's everything that you have with you. And it was when I came off the boat at the finish that I began to connect that with the global economy. And that happened for me through a moment of reflection when I went down to the Southern Ocean to make a documentary for the BBC. And I was on the island of South Georgia making a programme about the wandering albatross. And it was the most extraordinary place, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles from the nearest town, camping on an island in a tent with these magnificent birds around. And it really gave me thinking time for the first time. And I think it was there that I suddenly realised that that understanding of finite resources that I'd felt on the boat was exactly the same as our global economy. Down there, we'd invested hundreds of thousands of pounds in the whaling industry. We'd had thousands of people living in South Georgia, you know, getting the whale oil and, you know, love or hate whaling. It was a resource that we harvested and we ran out and we left South Georgia and all this industry was still there. And that made me reflect on the broader elements of the global economy. And I thought, but it's just the same. You know, we have finite resources, vital for our economy. And And it made me start to look for solutions. And the more I looked for solutions, the more I realized that they they kind of weren't there. Everything, the narrative was around, you know, using less and traveling less, which of course was absolutely vital because we knew we had these finite resources. We had, you know, catastrophic climate change looming. But 
for me, nothing pointed to a solution. It was all around, you mustn't do this, and you mustn't do this. And it was, for me, that question of what does success look like? You know, where are we trying to get to? What, what's that? What's that? What's the goal, actually, was the fundamental question I had in my head. You know, what's the goal? If you don't have a goal, you'll never get there. We can't get somewhere just by not doing things. We need to know actively what, what we do do. And that really, yeah. that quest for knowledge is, is what drove my journey of learning, which, like yours, was many years. And the more you learn, the more you, you come to understand. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, you saying that, of I explored this tension in the book between... Um, the wizard and the prophet kind of archetypes. Um, I'm, I'm referencing a different book by Charles Mann called The Wizard and the Prophet, where he said that by and large, the environmental movement can be divided up into these two impulses. One, the wizard that we can innovate our way out of kind of crisis and through tech kind of, you know, technical skill, find solutions. And the prophets that argue that actually we need to reduce and we need to simplify and we need to step back. Um, and it's I, th- I feel like when you were saying that, it's almost like... Yeah, saying the prophet's philosophy of just stop and use less is not enough. That actually you need kind of the innovation that would come from the wizard-like archetype of, um, of circular design. Mm. And I think what really hit me was, you know, as a young person growing up, um, thinking about what role you would play in the world. And, you know, I knew what it felt like as, as a young person wanting to sail around the world. That was my goal. I have no idea how I managed to achieve it because I was the most unlikely sailor in the world coming from the, the middle of England. But because I had that goal and that ambition, I was able to make it happen. And when I drew the parallels with you know, the, the learning around resources and how the economy works, I just felt, you know, if you are the young person growing up today, what's your goal? You know, and your goal can't be just to not do this and not do this. Obviously, you need to do the good things and not do the bad things, but there weren't enough good things there. I couldn't kind of get my head around what success looked like, and I found that really, really fascinating. And, and that, the, the, that what is the goal was absolutely at the, at the bottom of everything we created at the foundation. That, that created the foundation, if you like, of the foundation, saying, where are we actually trying to get to and, and, and what does success look like? And, Lily, when we think about moving out of the current paradigm and perhaps this mindset of, doing less harm, doing less, but actually imagining what's possible from a positive vision perspective and how can we create more good. We've spoken a bit about the role of business, but what what roles do you see business versus citizens versus government and policymakers having Mm. in creating, manifesting this positive vision? Yeah, so I don't necessarily, when I I say that I focus on like supply chains and um, and have focused on like capitalism as a way of creating change. It's not just, it's not just business in my mind, because um, to my mind, the capitalist global structure that we have, i.e. like money and the way that money flows um, is the kind of most powerful language that's being spoken today and is having an enormous impact. And of course, business has like a pivotal role in directing that flow of money, but business isn't doing that by itself. It's doing that in relationship with, consumers slash citizens, i.e. the individuals that buy into products or not, and services or not. Um, And also with, of course, governments, because governments watch market trends and they also have the capacity to regulate businesses and to create the right incentives um, and frameworks within which business can operate. So I see it as a kind of a dance that that everybody, unless they're living completely off-grid, I mean, even off-money, um, that everybody's part of and has a role to play in trying to kind of change change the change the dance, change the tempo. 
Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And that, that resonates quite strongly with the work that we've been doing on systemic change. And you know, that, that point you made about it's not just business, but it's also government and it's also citizens. You know, we try to just talk about people rather than consumers because mm -hmm. we don't actually want to consume anything other than food. You know, food keeps us alive for sure. You eat it, but, you know, clothes, I don't want to consume clothes. I just want to use them and wear them. So we, we talk around uh, a different context of how to talk about people, but, but just stepping back and looking at that system, you know, we set out trying to say, how do you change a global flow of a certain material? And the first one we looked at was plastic, plastic packaging. And it's exactly that point is that if everybody today wanted to use a different material, all the citizens around the world, they couldn't because the businesses aren't using them. And then if the, some of the businesses want to shift to different materials or different business models, then that can be helped by policy. So you need to get policy involved to change the system with business who want to make this happen, who can then provide the system to enable the citizens to choose the right thing to build the circular model. And the, the three are completely interconnected. It's this, and it's, and it's that systemic change which was so little talked of, which you bring up in your book, actually. I was reading this morning and you were talking about changing the system and that system means different things to a different people. And I think that's really interesting in how, how do you bring about that shift? Where, where do you start? And that's something that we've spent a lot of time looking at here at the foundation. I have one other question, which is when you're describing that realization on the boat um, of realizing that resources are finite, how did you deal with waste? I mean, did you have any waste? And was that also part of the the kind of problem space that when you're on a boat, you know, there's only so much waste you can put in a bin. <laughs> like, yeah. what do you throw overboard? Um, nothing goes overboard at all when you go around the world. So everything I had was, well, all the food was freeze-dried. So it was mm -hmm. small, you know, the, the worst polymers you can get, you know, metal, plastic together, keeping the food dry inside. And you literally poured in boiling water, which you produce from a desalinator. And then you ate the food and then there was the packet. So all the packets got stacked and bagged. And there was an area in the boat specifically for the waste. And when I got back, that all came out and you know, went off to get landfilled or incinerated. And that for me, I mean, I would, I would never throw anything into the water. I would, you just don't do that when you're at sea. You protect what's around you. It didn't really dawn on me then, but it does strike you as such a strange phenomena that we can produce a material that I know keeps a salad fresh for two hours, three hours until it's bought at lunchtime and it's good for 500 years. And that to me just crazy. seems yeah. just, it's a design flaw. And it mm -hmm. always struck me. So what are you asking the designer to design when they design that piece of plastic? Because it's amazing science. It can you know, keep it fresh and let bits of it breathe and all of those things. But actually, is it designed to last forever or is it designed to do that for a certain period of time? And, and that design question is something that we so often come back to at the foundation. It's what are you actually asking people to design? I always find it quite an amazing paradox, both that there's so much plastic in food, which, as you say, is um, this weird combination of like the most short-lived objects, i.e. food, yeah. um, with the most long-lived objects, i.e. plastic. And also that you get so much plastic in um, kind of kids' toys and diapers and wet wipes. Mm. Again, it's like, it seems so paradoxical that you're, yeah. you're buying these materials that are going to have a kind of long-lasting negative effect on the planet mm. to use for your children that are going to be the ones that inherit the planet. So, mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it just seems to me like a failure in design. You'd think that, you know, the nappies have so much value in them. You know, we look at the, the work that Emma's working on around food and cities and, and, and all of that nutrient. And, you know, for, for billions of years, 
the nutrients have cycled. You know, leaves have fallen, people have fallen, animals have fallen, rotted down and become the nutrients for that next cycle. And, and actually not that long ago, we broke that cycle completely. And all of that, that value and nutrient coming into cities is staying there and it's not being valorized. It's not being put back into food and farming. We've kind of, all of that, that huge flow of stuff into places isn't being regenerated, it's not being revalued, and it seems like a, another design failure that we're not able to recover that, that valuable material and feed it back into the system and, and keep that system regenerating. So we don't have the same pressure on the natural ecosystems and the deforestation because we need more land and more land to grow things. But we have that regenerative nature of, of you know, what we take gets fed back into a system to grow more, and I see that as being a, a real inspirational message for the next generation, for those young people thinking, you know, I'm going to work in that. I'm going to work on regenerative agriculture. And I love that positive element. And I like the way that your book is positioned to, to be a, a positive light. Yes, there are these problems. You have to mention them, but actually look at what's going on. And, and, and also you were very clear about some of the, the, the challenges in how you talk about things and how people take positions and you take positions. I found that very interesting because you can't have this conversation without analyzing things in your mind and thinking, what, what do I think about that? Do I, you know, am I into the, I'm going to go completely off grid, am I into the regenerative business? Where, where do I sit in all this? You have to ask yourself that question if you're thinking about it properly. It's a bit of a puzzle piece or yeah. puzzle pieces. And that was something that I took from the book too, and especially honing in on the food section, which mm. I have the most <laughs> existing knowledge about at least. Um, and I just appreciated the balanced view and re realizing that there is no silver bullet but rather acknowledging what role urban farming has, what role alternative proteins have, and what role the different system actors all need to play in this orchestrated way to get all of those different pieces of the puzzle into place at that right moment and mm -hmm. the importance of timing. Mm -hmm. And just to pick up on the design piece, because that's so critical, whether you're thinking of redesigning a product or redesigning an entire system. And Lily, I'd be interested to hear your views on how important the creatives are and how do we inspire creatives to be such an important part of the shift that's needed? I think the creatives have an instrumental role to play. Um, and I loved actually, I know when, the found, when your foundation didn't, I, I might get it slightly wrong, but I know there was an announcement that was calling for like millions of designers to do circular design, is that right? Um, as a kind of open call, I thought that was brilliant because we do need to galvanize the, the massive amounts of untapped creativity there is, you know, on the planet. Young designers, you know, students um, that can think about these challenges and problems in new ways. Um, I think that historically, I mean, I studied history of art because I'm a big kind of believer in the power of art and that um, art in its kind of, and I say art in a broad sense, creativity in its kind of purest um, manifestation, I think allows people to maybe see with an objectivity that's not caught up in existing, the existing status quo and the existing kind of systems and society that we're in. And so can kind of help, help humanity navigate into new ways of thinking and new ways of seeing the world. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really a big fan of the kind of creative spirit. And when it's applied to these kind of very practical problems, I think that we have the capacity then to innovate. And we're already seeing that, you know, we're already seeing kind of massive amounts of innovation happening across loads of different sectors. That really makes me think of a, of a story in the early days of the foundation. And we'd been working with students 
And one of the students went up to his teacher and he, and he was talking about his exams and he said, you know, I couldn't think of anything to design. You know, everything's been done. Here I am trying to think of a product to design, but everything's been done. He said, but now, sir, now I've learned about the circular economy. Everything I see, I want to redesign. And I think it's all about opportunity and it's all about creativity and it's all about, yeah, well, there's everything to do. And I love the notion that the faster we do this, the better. You know, the faster we design in a circular way, the better. And there's often a tension between growth and competitiveness and growth and, and the, you know, the planetary boundaries. But actually within circular economy, if you're building that regenerative restorative model, if you're you know, rebuilding natural capital as you go, then actually the faster you can accelerate this, the better. This is something we want to grow fast. And I really like that element about it that it's about, it's about building the speed, it's about opportunity and creativity. And do you feel optimistic things are going in, a, in the right direction based over you know, the last 10 years of your work in this space? I think, am I optimistic? Yes, absolutely. I'm hugely optimistic. I've seen some incredible shifts in thinking in some um, very interesting areas of the economy. You know, we work with government, we work with policy, and there's been sh huge shifts there in many countries in the European Union. Um, here in the UK, the circular economy package was announced um, just a few weeks ago. So this is all happening very, very quickly. And in 10 years, we've seen circular economy go from something which wasn't really discussed at all to something which is at the forefront of some of the major policy decisions. And actually recently, Ursula von der Leyen from Europe was saying that she believes circular economy lies at the heart of the, the rebuild, the rebuild back better after this COVID crisis. And it's wonderful to see the words in there and being used because it speaks of opportunity and, and creativity and, and, and economic benefit. And I think one of the biggest, um, to answer your question, one of the biggest things I feel I've seen is the the understanding of the circular economy from a business perspective, from a system perspective, from a policy perspective as being a way out of where we are from a climate perspective, from a, a materials perspective, from a pollution perspective. It's, it gives a framework for designers, for policymakers, for businesses to step out of the linear system and move to something which is regenerative and restorative and has all of these other positive effects. And although we're not circular yet, and you know, I ask myself that question every day. How far are we on that circular journey? I think that some pretty major milestones have been set and particularly on the work around plastic packaging that we've been doing. You know, there are 20, 25 targets. We have 20% of the global in industry signed up to that. Uh, we have some of the biggest brands in the world. And when you talk about reach and um, uh, getting the circular message out to more and more people, however it's described, the word circular economy may not even be there, but it's about building this circular system. Um, the reach of those corporates is huge. And we're at a time now, I think, after the crisis where the dialogue between business and policymakers and government has never been stronger. And I think that gives us a really solid foundation for stepping up to the next level within circular activity, despite the, the challenges that the current global economy is facing. And Lily, I'd, I'd also like to just hear from you because it's clear that both of you have such optimism in your spirits and, and during these especially challenging times where hope is easy to lose um, for many people around the world as we look externally. Um, but from your perspective and where you're at in this moment, what are you most hopeful about for the future? I think as, you know, as I try and capture in the book, which the subtitle is Reasons for Optimism in Our Changing World, I do have a lot of reasons for optimism. Um, 
I'm less well-versed. I'm aware of some of the changes. I'm less well-versed in the changes in the specifically circular economy space. That's why I was interested to hear your thoughts on that. Um, but it, it's no surprise to me um, because I feel like there are so many changes happening across the business sector and the political sector pushing in the right direction. Um, and there are lots of examples of that, whether it's the push towards stakeholder capitalism and the fact that there is more dialogue around you know, reframing the le- the basic legal framework of capitalism away from being about profit maximization only for shareholders towards other values and um, other responsibilities. Um, I think there's been a sea change. You know, it's not absolute, but there's been a kind of sea change in the last year um, that is really promising um, to that end. I think the fact that universal basic income is looking like a more realistic policy that's being experimented and potentially implemented in different places around the world um, is really promising because we need to think about inequality and social security. And I think um, policy ideas like that have a lot of potential. Um, and yeah, well, it'd be interesting to see the results of those experiments. I think the kind of general awakening of an environmental consciousness is super positive and um, among citizens and the collective. And I think that's pushing higher standards um, from industry and politicians. I think that, you know, politics is still far, far, far from where it needs to be given the science. And um, I spend a lot of time worrying that we're not gonna get where we need to go quick enough. Um, But that being said, there have been really important strides made in the last few years in terms of net zero goals um, and um, yeah, kind of significant climate commitments from governments. So I'm again hopeful that things are going in the right direction, even if sometimes it feels like they're not going fast enough. And Lily, how do you feel the COVID crisis has played into all this? Um, I I really don't know. I feel like I'm quite nervous to, to, to get too optimistic that it's going to have a positive effect because I feel like anything is possible right now. Mm-hmm. And that could be really positive you know of course it could it could give a lot of kind of silver linings to an awful situation um it could galvanize galvanize us to put in policies that were quite radical a year ago whether it is universal basic income or a green new deal um we could rebuild the economy in a more circular way you know i think there's real potential that will happen and i'm very hopeful that that will happen because it would be absolute madness if we don't take this opportunity to change things and avert future crises. Um, But I I feel kind of nervous making any prophecies because it feels like the world is a very, um, you know, strange, in a very strange moment and Mm. we're yet to see how things play out. Yeah, yeah. It's a fragile thing. It's very fragile, yeah. Um, The thing that's come to my mind a lot um, of late is the lack of mainstream conversation around the cause of COVID-19. Um, I feel like there's been very, I mean, there has been conversation about it, but it hasn't been in the mainstream. And, you know, yes, we can focus on symptoms and we need to focus on the kind of symptomatic response, social distancing, masks. I mean, actually our company Wise Glasses have been making masks. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't be focusing on kind of alleviating the symptoms, but unless we really are honest with ourselves about analyzing the root cause, you know, why was there a global pandemic? Um, then we're very likely to risk having more in future. Mm. And the research seems to be very clear that the majority now of infectious diseases that humans have are zoonotic. They're coming from animals to humans. 
because there is so little wild space left on the planet and that we're seeing a biodiversity crisis emerge um, because of our intensive animal agriculture practices. And of course, this one is related to China, but there are many other infectious diseases that have come out of um, other countries around the world, including our own. And, and yeah, I think that's the conversation that I would be really wanting to have right now, because actually that is interconnected with the climate crisis too. It's yeah, like totally. realizing that COVID-19 is part of the climate crisis. It's, mm. it's a manifestation mm. of our unhealthy relationship with the natural world yeah. is, the, is the conversation we need to have rather than just not having that conversation and assuming that we're going to become a species that normalizes face masks and social distancing, distancing and expects more pandemics, um, which I really don't want to be the case. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that the opportunity to take this moment of complete upheaval, really, and, and you know, it's a, as you say, it's a horrendous situation, um, but it has completely uprooted so much of, of industry, of business, of our lives in every single way as we work out what fits for the future. And I do think we need to use this as a, as a, as a line in the sand, as a, as a point in time and say, we clearly need to do things differently. I think you're absolutely right. How do we do things differently? And, mm -hmm. and that's why I have such hope for circular economy when it comes to regenerating natural capital and being able to use the land we have much better and regenerate it and bring in more biodiversity and not have to take more land, you know, not have to, to have more biodiversity loss because we're using what we have in a much better restorative way. I think there's that, that's a win-win situation for us and also for, for, the, for the biodiversity conversation. So I think... You know, having those broader discussions about the interconnectedness of everything that's going on is is absolutely vital. And and I, you know, I I feel optimistic, but you're right. It's it's a difficult time. It's a fragile time, and and it's a time that we will always remember. Actually, I think of all of us in our generations, this is this has been absolutely game changing and world changing. No, I was just going to add to that that it's a massive, I think, wake up call. The, the systems that we have that I think for a long time we've been sort of told are like the best possible systems and we're so lucky that we can like have access to all this stuff from around the world and you know like everything's great even though the scientists have been freaking out for a long time um, I think COVID is a massive wake-up and it's actually been an x-ray as well to inequality and the kind of structural kind of massive inequalities in our own human society um, so it feels to me like yeah, a massive wake up to go, actually, these systems aren't, aren't entirely perfect. Actually, they're really problematic in many ways. They're not only risking our habitat and the only earth that we can live on, but also our health and our kind of mental health and our physical health. Like we need to evolve them. We need to change them. And if we're honest with each other about that reality, then the conversation can begin in a positive way about, okay, so how can we change them? What are the ideas? What are the solutions? Yeah. And the good news is there are plenty. You know? um, we just have to kind of be brave enough to, yeah. to push those solutions forward and experiment and be willing to get things wrong probably, but at least know, know that we're trying to, trying to create a kind of positive change. I think it's so important to, to have a goal as to where we're trying to get to right now because everyone has stopped, everyone is thinking. I think there's a much stronger dialogue between people in a, in a different way than we had before the pandemic. I've certainly found that the conversations we've been having have been quite extraordinary over the months during lockdown and following. And I think you have to harness that dialogue, that strength of dialogue and, and paint that picture of what you want the future to look like and then just make it happen. Somehow we have to make that happen because as you say, it's been a shock, it's been a, it's been a pause, um, but it's also given us all 
in our own strange ways thinking time to reflect on what we want the future to look like and, and it has to be different. A great message from Lily Cole there about why we need to be brave in addressing the problems we face in society and the economy and how creativity can help us get there. That conversation was part of Summit 2020 and you can hear more about the role of brands, designers and other creatives over the next few weeks. So make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us in the meantime, you can do so via the social media accounts in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time on The Circular Economy Show. 